0: This is Research Software Engineer Stories coming straight at you from USRSE, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSE Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket and joining me today is Tim Haynes, research staff in the computer science department working with Bart Miller at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Tim got his PhD in 2018, also from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and studied galaxy evolution with numerical simulations and has continued on to do some really cool work, some of which we're going to talk about today. So Tim, welcome to RSC Stories.
1: Well, hello and thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with some of your background. What led you down the path to be interested in science or programming and to pursue a PhD?
1: Sure. So. I have a very varied background. I took what is probably the most circuitous path a person could take through academia to get to where I landed. I have been in, or rather I was in a university taking classes as a full-time student from 2001 until 2018. Turns out that's not the record, but pretty close. I started out, let's, let's start at the beginning, which is a good place to start, I suppose. Fresh out of high school, I actually went into a special six-year medical program at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where it was a combined bachelor's degree in some sort of biology or something and a, an MD program. So instead of doing the normal four years of undergrad and then four years of med school, they compressed the whole thing down into six years. There are only a couple of those in the States, but it's actually fairly common in places like the UK and some parts of Europe to have that kind of compressed structure, but in the U.S. it's it's pretty uncommon. But anyway, I I started out in med school. That lasted a year. (laughs) The the failure rate in that program was about 30%, which was not, not good. Once I left that, I actually went into computer science. I had a real interest in technology even while I was doing stuff in med school. And there was a a decent computer science department there at UMKC. So I went through that. I took a whole bunch of computer science classes. And then I kind of realized, well, I don't want to be a code monkey for the rest of my life. And that was kind of the career track that was being pushed through that program. They really were building people who could write software at a basic level and then go work at actually one of the local tech companies. And that was kind of their singular track that they pushed. I didn't really wanna do that. So I started looking at other things and I got into a couple of engineering classes. They had an interesting combined electrical and computer engineering program. Again, one I've not seen before. Those are usually two separate degree processes. So I started taking some engineering classes, really got into that. Turned out it was just really, is more low level programming stuff. So a lot of my computer science sort of just segued right into those electrical and computer engineering classes. And then as I was taking the engineering classes, I had to start taking some sort of first and second year physics classes because the requirements were slightly different. And when I started taking those physics classes, I got really into it. I really had a good time taking those physics classes. So by the time that the electrical and computer engineering program was getting ready to finish up, I was like, well, I really like this physics stuff. Let me take a few more of these classes. So I started taking some physics classes (laughs) and... I really got into the physics. It was great. It was amazing. I, I loved it a lot. And then I realized well, you know, over this whole process, I have taken so many math classes that I was actually only three classes away from getting a bachelor's degree in math. So I just went ahead and did that too. <laughs> and so in 2000, 2009, I graduated, quote unquote, with four bachelor's degrees computer science, electrical and computer engineering physics and mathematics, and then I immediately went into a the graduate program there at UMKC to do my master's in physics. Now, I wasn't interested in doing physics research um, as a master's student, but the year before I decided to do my master's degree there in astronomer had come to the department. It was the first time they'd had anyone outside of condensed matter physics, which was that department's real emphasis. And I got really interested in what he was doing. And I felt at the time it was a nice sort of combination of all of the things I had been studying over the last eight years. And it sort of worked as a nice amalgamation of that stuff. And so I started doing some research work in astrophysics. And I just, I became enamored even more so than I was doing in physics. And so after two years I matriculated out, I guess it was three years. So I matriculated out from there and went to the PhD program at the university of Wisconsin, Madison, where as part of a normal process, you have to do a master's degree because you have to take two years of classes to do your PhD there. And so that just automatically gives you a master's in astronomy. Uh, You can do a terminal master's in this program, but I went on to do the PhD component and finally finished that up in 2018. I I have a few pieces of paper along the way in my 17-year track. It was a long and circuitous road, as I noted. And uh, I've I've run into a couple of people who have taken sort of similar tracks where they meandered for a while and ended up in astronomy, but no one quite as meandering as me.
0: Meandering is good. It means that you kind of followed your heart and it sounds like you did. And it's also pretty good. You have those pieces of paper because I'm pretty sure that I lost mine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I actually just the, the last few months ago, my dad was doing some digging around in all of the things he had saved and have found my high school diploma So now I actually have all of my pieces of paper from my high school diploma to my PhD.
0: Very impressive. When you said that you didn't want to be a code monkey, in your mind, is that sort of the line that distinguishes what might be considered research and maybe just very standard vanilla software engineering?
1: I, I don't mean that as a pejorative, but rather that, like I said, the program that they had at that time, I don't know if it's still the case but it was very much geared at producing students who could write and just enough just enough coding capability to go work at one of the local tech companies. There was pretty much an open door policy between graduating from that program and going to work at one of the local tech companies. And there, there's certainly something to be said for that kind of nine to five, very structured, very homogenous kind of job where you're just writing code for a company to do the company things. I didn't have a lot of interest in that, but it certainly provides job stability right out of college. And it's a good opportunity for some folks. This of course was in 2003. So this is well before you had any of your FANG companies. I mean, Google existed at the time, so did Amazon, but they were nothing of what they are today. And Facebook didn't exist at that time. So you know, that kind of opportunity was huge for people, whereas today it's extremely commonplace. And so I think programs put a little bit of emphasis in different directions, but at the time it really wasn't for me.
0: So you found that in order to do more kind of computer science research work, you needed to kind of head into a specific domain.
1: Yeah, I would say that the the engineering stuff that I fell into after computer science was more of exploring how The software engineering stuff I learned could be applied, not necessarily with an ultimate goal of being a researcher, because at that time I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was still very much in the exploration phase of things. But yeah, I would I would say even back then I knew that I really wanted to do something more applied than just, you know, being in that kind of office cubicle nine to five job where you were given tasks to do and then write some code, and then uh, solve some tickets. I wanted to work in a broader set of problems.
0: Totally get it. So you said you were enamored with astrophysics. What was so enamoring about astrophysics, or possibly still is?
1: It may be a little cliched, but I I talk about this all the time. I I think as all astronomers do, when we interact with the, the general public, I think people have an innate sense of interest in astronomy because they look at the stars or, you know, they'll see the moon and sometimes, you know, they put telescopes out on the sidewalk and let folks look at, say, the the moons of Jupiter or uh, Saturn and people are just surprised that these things exist and and there's a little bit of wonder and awe in there. I think everyone has that a little bit, but for me, I, I think that The most fundamental concept in astronomy actually comes from a quote from Carl Sagan's Cosmos series. And that is that humans, we, we are a way for the cosmos to know itself. That to me is quite profound because of course, naturally humans are biologically and evolutionarily tied to the earth, but the atoms in our bodies came from the forges of dying stars. Uh, except for the hydrogen, of course, which came from the nucleosynthesis in the Big Bang, but all of the other elements, uh, the oxygen, for example, that is in the water that makes up 70% of our bodies, that oxygen is formed in high mass stars. And so if high-mass stars didn't do that, there is no way that humans could exist. And to me, that's that kind of connection between our own existence and the pure physical unguided processes of nature, of the cosmos, is a profound connection that I really appreciated early on.
0: I love that quote. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. When I start to think about that, I, I'll first get overwhelmed. And you know, I think as most people, maybe you feel very small And then I kind of realized that like, because I am so infinitesimally small and unimportant, that means that I really have total freedom, I guess, with my life to do whatever, like there is no higher purpose or anything. I I shouldn't get philosophical here, but I definitely think this kind of thing is something that even the average person like me, that is not an astrophysicist thinks about.
1: This is an interesting point because I think that quote demonstrates both the smallness of us because we are little beings on a blue marble spinning around a very average star in a very average galaxy in a roughly disinteresting portion of the local cosmos. But even though we are such an unmattering component of the universe at large, we are still physically connected at at the particle level to the cosmos itself. We are simultaneously insignificant and yet A beautiful part of an enormous whole. And that sort of dichotomy or the duality, I suppose, is what I was looking for there. I haven't been able to find that in any other studies.
0: Agree. And I, yeah, I love that idea. So you found that you loved astrophysics. And how did you choose to go to Wisconsin-Madison?
1: One of the collaborators for my master's thesis is actually a professor here. At UW Madison, and I got to know her fairly well working on that project. And so it kind of was natural for me to consider UW Madison for a possibility for grad school. But I knew at the time that I was looking at PhD programs for astrophysics that I wanted to do uh, computational work. I didn't really want to do, I guess, let me back up a little bit and talk about the dichotomy of astronomy. So, astronomy, astrophysics, these two words are interchangeable. They have no special meaning anymore. They kind of used to, but they don't anymore. But it's really split into two sort of subgroups. There are observers. These are people who use telescopes to actually observe light at different wavelengths or sometimes in different particles. Of course, now we have gravitational wave observatories, so that's really interesting but those are all observers. And then you have the theorists. And of course, a hundred years ago, theorists were people who had pen and paper. Today, theorists are people who use national supercomputers with tens of thousands of computing cores on enormous scales consuming megawatts of power, which is enough to power a small city. And so I knew early on that I really wanted to work more in the theoretical side because of my computational background. And specifically at that time, this was around 2012-2013, this idea of using graphics cards, the, the same graphics cards that are in your computer that let you play games, those graphics cards can actually be programmed to solve math problems. And astronomy is just a bunch of math problems, right? It's just physics. So we have a bunch of equations we need to solve for and you evolve these equations in time and physical properties of the universe pop out. And so I knew that I wanted to do computational work and I got a real interest in the, what's called GPU computing, graphics processing units. And I knew that was sort of the combination I wanted, but it turns out in 2012, 2013, not a lot of people were working on that, the very sub-sub field of computational astrophysics. And so there were really only a handful of programs that I applied to at that time. It turned out that although the person I was working with on my master's program, or my master's project, who worked at UW, she is actually an observer, so she does telescope work. But another person in the department who came in, I think 2011, I think, yeah, somewhere in that vicinity. So she was a brand new professor, but she is a theorist who wanted to do work on doing galaxy simulations of galaxies like the Milky Way, but wanted to do it with GPU computing. And so that just by wonderful happenstance worked out extremely well. And so UW was on my list, you know, because I had a collaborator here, but there was also a faculty person who who was doing exactly what I wanted to do. There was just a lot of good happenstance in that situation.
0: Yeah, that sounds like the perfect match. So can you kind of walk us through your project a little bit? Tell us... Enough details so that we understand it, but not so much that you have no idea what you're talking about.
1: So the project I've been working on, so I graduated with my PhD in 2018. I took six months off because it had been 17 years. I figured I needed a little break, but in the beginning of 2019, I started on a completely different project from anything I had worked on before. It was in computer science, but it was more of the the sort of core computer science work. And it was in an area that's called systems programming. And systems programming envelops a lot of things, but I would say the biggest component of systems programming is uh, interacting with the low-level features of an operating system. So when you write software, you can pretty much ignore, for the most part, exactly how the operating system will execute your code. You just type commands into the terminal, things happen, right? But if you peel back that layer and and uncover what's happening under that, all of that is systems programming, and there's a lot of different pieces that make your program run, and it turns out that this is a very rich field of understanding how programs execute and being able to manipulate and control that. And specifically, the group that I work in now, they built a tool back in the mid nineties. This tool has been around for a long time, but they built a tool that will take your program and it'll tear it apart back into its constituent pieces. It can't reconstitute the source code that it came from, but it can tear it apart into its constituent pieces and look at it in more detail. And then what it can do is it can go in and modify your program without knowing anything about the source that it came from. And it can insert extra instructions for the CPU to understand. And what it can do is insert arbitrary amounts of code. And so this is very useful, for example, if you wanna know how long it takes to execute a particular function. You could insert code that says, hey, record the time now, execute this function, then record the time again, and tell me how long that elapse took. And that is the foundational principle of doing performance analysis on software today. The nice thing about this is that because this application that I work on doesn't need to know anything about the source code, that means that the people who write the source code don't need to know anything about how my tool works in order for them to get performance data. So I can take anyone's code that they have compiled into a binary and distributed it, I can take their code, put it in my tool and measure its performance, and I can do that on any machine. Well, I say any machine, any machine that is supported by my tool. And so this becomes a very, very useful feature for writing tools. This subcategory of system programming is called tools, and these are just individual tools that can go in and modify your source code or measure how it behaves in some way in different ways and give you different data about how your program is executing. And this is very nice because it dovetails straight into what is called high performance computing, HPC. And HPC is actually what I wanted to was working on whenever I started my PhD program. So those graphics cards that you could program Those are now very, very popular in the HPC community. So I've kind of come full circle here a little bit. Whereas before I was writing code to execute on GPUs, now I am writing code for a tool that can analyze code that is running on a GPU. And so I'm kind of attacking the same problem in two different directions.
0: I was uh, poking around the internet, and I found an old talk that you gave, and it was actually back in 2016 at CppCon, and you were talking about compiler switches. So kind of putting together your life story, it does sound like you found interest in systems programming well before you started working on this tool, which I think is Dyninst?
1: Yes, sorry. Yeah, so the name of the tool I'm working on is Dyninst. That talk I gave, and CppCon is the C++ conference, the C++ conference. It's a huge conference that they put on every year. Of course, the last couple of years, it's been a little bit weird. There are lots of other C++ conferences, both in the United States and around the globe, but CppCon is the big one. I've always had a great love for C++. It was the first language I learned back when I was taking computer science classes in like 2002. And, And I had a rekindling of it as I came to do my PhD, because most of the software that is in astronomy is written either in C++ or Fortran. Fortunately, Fortran is kind of going away uh, in that realm. So I had a real interest in that kind of technology. I really liked the language. And so CPPcon was kind of a good fit. Now this particular project, or the talk that I gave in uh, 2016, stemmed from a end of semester project That I was working on when I was taking an elective class for my PhD. The PhD at UW-Madison is two years of classes and three years of research, And although it's really five years of research and two years of classes. But (laughs) in those first two years of classes, you have to take electives, so many credits of electives, outside of astronomy. And you can do this in physics or math. I think there were some chemistry courses But I chose to do them in engineering because they had some really interesting computational classes and they had some nice machine learning type classes as well. And these were all things that I had seen before in my electrical and computer engineering days and in my computer science days. So it was essentially just a refresher for me with almost a 15-year gap (laughs) in between. So as part of taking one of those engineering classes, the end of semester project you could do whatever you wanted. And so I was started looking at how compilers actually generate code. And it turns out this is kind of one basic aspect of systems programming. I was specifically looking at how compilers were generating what's called vectorized code. In the simplest concept of a computer is a machine that reads a piece of data, a number, because computers only work with numbers, And it says, hey, I need to add these two numbers or multiply them or do some kind of arithmetic operation on them. Or I need to move it over here or, you know, do something like that. At that level, it's very, very simple. But today's computer chips, the CPUs, the central processing units, are extraordinarily complex. They are probably now more complex than the operating systems themselves. It's, it's kind of crazy how much a CPU does. It no longer just adds and subtracts numbers. It does an amazing amount of stuff. But part of this advancement is getting a CPU to do more things at once. And part of that is called vectorization, where instead of adding two numbers together, it can add four numbers together or 64 numbers together. And so this, this turns out to be very, very good for improving performance. If you can add 64 numbers all at once, that takes about 64 times less time than it does to add 64 numbers individually. And so I was looking at how compilers actually produce code that does this. And in doing so, I found some very interesting trends that were very sensitive to the parameters that you pass to the compiler when you invoke it. So for folks who aren't terribly familiar with the command line, In Linux, this is also true in Windows and Mac, but particularly in Linux, you have some kind of command and then it'll take a bunch of parameters and those parameters change how the the program behaves. And so compilers do the same thing. You can invoke a compiler and pass it a whole bunch of flags and it'll change how it behaves. And one of the things that you can change is how the compiler generates code. These are called optimizations. And these optimizations are there to make your code run faster and vectorization is one of the optimizations that a compiler can do. And I wanted to know how the different compiler options affected the optimizations that the compiler was doing and what kind of vectorizations it was producing. And it turned out this was a very unknown sort of bit of research. Well, there's a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about how compilers actually generate code. And then there was also a lot of kind of old knowledge that people had It wasn't actually knowledge. It was more of just superstition. And my professor 20 years ago told me this, therefore it's true today kind of situation. And this was the first time that anyone had really looked at how these compilers were generating code today. And it turned out that it was quite a bit different from what I expected and a little bit different from what people had been talking about in the literature beforehand. Now I didn't end up publishing this result. I just gave a talk on it at CPPCon where I had to kind of change a little bit the results that I gave because I needed to put it in the context of the C++ programming language. But the end result was that I was doing systems programming analysis, and I didn't know it at the time. This fun little project for my engineering class as an elective turned into this kind of big project that actually had some useful results in it. And that was actually one of the key components led me to getting my current job.
0: So when you were looking at the different results, when you had different levels of optimization, how did you do that? Would you just compile something and then, you know, output assembly and then look at the assembly? Or did you write like a custom tool to do it?
1: So I wrote some custom, just little bash scripts to do the performance analysis to time how long it took to execute the program. This was before I knew that there were, really neat tools available for doing performance analysis. So if I knew then what I know now, I would have done things a little bit differently, but I think the results probably would have been roughly the same. But yeah, I essentially just wrote my own little tools to execute the compiler with several different combinations of options, measured the time. As you noted, I would just have to manually look at the assembly in order to figure out, you know, this optimization flag ran in 1.1 seconds and this other one ran in 0.4 seconds. So what was exactly the difference between the code that the compiler generated in those two different situations? And it turned out that a lot of it had to do with vectorization. The more that the compiler could vectorize the problem, the faster it ran. This is not particularly surprising. What was surprising is that a lot of that old knowledge, which was really fun, told people that they should do it a particular way. But that particular way was actually not as fast as these other ways of doing it. Unsurprisingly, the more information you gave to the compiler about the CPU that you were going to run on, the better code it could produce. And so hopefully the takeaway that folks had for that talk is that you can't just throw stuff at a compiler and hope that it, it does what you want. You really have to think about what you're doing. And there's a lot of information you can give to the compiler that while it reduces portability in some instances, it can vastly improve performance. And in HPC, the high performance computing, we don't really care about portability too much because we're usually running on just one computer. Although this has changed drastically in the second half of the project that I'm working on. But that's still kind of the general case. And and fortunately, a lot of folks have taken this into consideration and actually now have excellent ways of producing portable, yet highly optimized code. And and this is just fantastic. This is exactly the sort of stuff that I was talking about five years ago. Has become a reality, even though I didn't contribute to that directly. So I, I was very glad to see that that came to fruition.
0: I watched some of your talk. We'll make sure to put it in the show notes so that the listeners can watch it as well. So to do a little bit of a jump on topic, since we are on RSC Stories, I have to ask, are you familiar with the term research software engineer? And if so, what does it mean to you?
1: Yeah, so I actually didn't know about research software engineering until I went to an astronomy conference, which was kind of strange, but the, the conference is called the AAS. This is the American Astronomical Society. This is a standard conference where people from around the world can come and give talks on myriad topics. And one of the topics they had was about software in the sciences. This is a phrase that I certainly didn't develop, but it is one that I use often. And so software in the sciences is sort of the envelope in which I very neatly fit because it encompasses many different aspects of writing software that will solve some sort of problem in science. Be it some physical simulation or some systems programming for doing performance analysis, whatever it happens to be there, that's a big envelope that you can fill. My interests definitely lie well within that. So I went to this talk on the software in the sciences. And one of the slides talked about this research software engineering, a phrase I had never heard before, but it turns out this was an up and coming project here in the United States that had sort of started in the UK where it is actually quite popular. And so I took that and I went back and started talking to some of my fellow grad students about it, who were also kind of working in computation and none of them knew about it. And so it was a great moment to sort of share that knowledge. We all sort of realized in talking about RSE that we were all research software engineers. We were writing software in the sciences to solve science problems, but we didn't realize we had that title. And so that that was actually really neat.
0: So when you found this new knowledge, when you're at your university, do you feel like there's an appropriate structure and level of support for your role? Or are there still some challenges that maybe need to be worked through?
1: I think that generally speaking, there are still a lot of challenges that need to be worked through. I can speak only specifically about the astronomy program at UW-Madison, and that there are still some faculty who have the mindset that Software is a thing that you do to get an answer instead of being a product that you produce that can be consumed by other researchers. And so there are no classes or even like colloquia or discussion groups about how to write software in the sciences. And I actually started a couple of like mini lectures, mini colloquia on software in the sciences. It kind of continued on after I left. I haven't checked up on it recently, but there was definitely still interest in it immediately after I left at least because the people that I was teaching stuff to started getting interested in sharing that information with other people. But I still think that there is a lack of formal structure for teaching software and sciences within the sciences themselves. There's a lot of emphasis today, and again, My experience in the computer science realm is 20 years old, so I'm definitely not up to date. But my perspective on computer science today is that there is a lot of emphasis on what's called the big data problems. And this is where you have so much data that it would be impossible for one person to try to analyze it completely. And naturally, astronomy has a huge big data problem because The observers are now building so many and such big telescopes that the amount of data they generate in one night of observing used to be generated in a year or more of observing. This is going to be an enormous problem in astronomy. And my concern is that they're going to focus more on these big data tasks, which do have important computer science components in them. But they're not going to focus on the fundamentals of research software engineering, this sort of science, uh, software in the sciences aspect, that's going to become a real problem because what I have seen happen is you get a research group at one university who writes a bunch of software to solve a particular problem. You go to another research group at a different university, they're all writing software to solve a similar or even the same problem. And there's no communication between the two, because maybe one group had a really great algorithm for solving this particular problem. And this other group had a really great problem or a really great algorithm for solving some other aspect of the same problem. And the two don't communicate. And so there is a deficit in quality of the information that is gathered from this data, because the two of them don't talk. And the RSE and software in the sciences is really targeted at trying to build these bridges of communication. And that is still very, very important even in this era of big data. Like I said, my concern is that, you know, computer science folks and the science folks are all sort of focusing on this big data problem and they're still ignoring that fundamental software in the sciences issues.
0: You totally hit the nail on the head with respect to communication. I've, I feel like I've also expressed that idea many times that we're very bad at just kind of working together, not even just across institutions, but even within institutions and in like different labs or departments that could be working on, on some of the problems. So one question I have for you is, do you think there should be more initiative or awareness or something around systems programming in the research software engineering community?
1: So I think one place where we can do a lot better is a place where I was lacking as well. So when I was working on that project in my engineering class that turned into that CppCon talk, I mentioned that I just had some little shell scripts that I wrote for doing performance analysis. If I had known at that time, how many wonderful tools are available for doing performance analysis, I absolutely would have used one of them. So I think that one place we can definitely start is getting the knowledge out that these tools exist and are here to help you better understand how your code is performing on different platforms. I think even just that small step will be a big step, will have big results because a lot of time in the computational sciences, the the observational sciences, again, I'm speaking from my experience in astronomy, the, the observers don't really care too much about this. Although. Once we get into big data stuff, maybe this will, you know, the two ideas of computational and observational astronomy will merge. And this may happen in other fields of physics, not only in the physical sciences, but also in the arts-based programs. We're finding that even in economics and literature and history, there are these sort of big data problems. And so we can start to apply more of these computer science ideas to those and there You know, we still need to be conscious about how well our programs are performing, right? Because if you can solve a problem in a day, that's really amazing, right? You have three to five years of a PhD program. And if in one day you can generate usable real results, that is amazing. But if it takes six months to generate those results now, that is good, (laughs) but not nearly as good as generating them in a day. And so the amount of work that it takes to go from six months to a day is probably quite a bit. And this is you know, kind of an extreme example, but, but this general idea of being able to analyze the performance of your code is very, very important. And I think that that's a good first step for introducing people to some of these concepts of systems programming. Now, whether or not anyone takes from those tools, and wants to start actually developing the tools themselves rather than just using them, that is a huge step away from the basic kind of computing concepts that are taught in the sciences today. I would even argue that that is a very large step away from the computing and programming concepts that are taught in most computer science programs today. There's a big difference between the amount of effort it takes to start to get people to realize that there are wonderful tools available for doing performance analysis is a fairly small amount of work that I think could reap huge benefits. But then taking folks and turning them into developers of those tools is probably a step that is going to be too big, you know, unless a person has a real interest in it like I did and then kind of stumbled into it.
0: Okay, we're coming up on time. I have just three more quick questions. Sure. What do you like about living in Wisconsin?
1: It's cold in the winter. So I, I came from Missouri, specifically in southern Missouri, where it didn't get very cold in the winters and it got super hot in the summers, like 105 degrees was not terribly uncommon in August. It's much better here.
0: <laughs> I also am a, a winter beast. So I know you have a little beast yourself. You have a cat. Can you tell us about your cat?
1: Oh, sure. So I have a cat. He is 14 years old. His name is Enzo. And uh, I've had him for seven years now. I got him about a year after I moved here to Madison. It's the first time I've owned a pet. So it, it was interesting. Yeah, it's it's been a good time. He's an old man cat now. So he mostly just sleeps all day. So.
0: Ah, to be an old man cat sounds like a good life.
1: (laughs) It's not too bad.
0: So finally, what do you like to do in your free time when you aren't working or programming?
1: Oh, what a great question. (laughs) What is this free time of which you speak? So I, I bought a house a couple of years ago, so now most of my free time goes into fixing things in my house. I try to still make sure I have time for things like watching some TV shows or movies or reading. I think reading is probably where I spend most of my leisure time. I I do not like to read books with plots, is what I tell people. Most of my reading is done on technical books, particularly in the areas of parallel computing and the C++ programming language. I have actually spent some time reviewing and editing books, doing kind of technical editing work on an unpaid, unofficial basis, where I just send the sort of errata back to the authors. And some of the authors have been very grateful and responded and said, Hey, I'll send you an, uh, you know, an updated version when we release that new version. So that's been actually really neat. And another way that I feel that I can contribute back some of the knowledge I've gained to the community at large.
0: Oh, that's really cool. We'll have to ask you for some of your book recommendations to include with the show notes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you have to have a very particular taste in books if you want me to recommend some for you.
0: Hey, that's okay. So Tim, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I'm relatively new to systems programming, but it's something that I'm enjoying working on You know, for the first time. And I'm so glad that we were able to have you on the show to offer this perspective, which I don't think we've heard yet. So thank you so much for being on RSE Stories.
1: Thank you for having me.